There is much to lament about the ways that our culture seems to be not merely drifting from God's ways and God's truth, but often running further and further from God's ways and God's truth. Uh, Just here recently, right, what we've seen in the devaluing of human life, uh, in the distortion of marriage, are just two of the most obvious examples of ways that our culture has said, thank you very much, I'm going to do it my own way and not God's way. Though we don't wish for things to get worse, or for things to get harder, or for our culture to grow more hostile toward Christianity than it already has, The silver lining of that is that the hostility that we are seeing now helps us better understand what the Christians in the first century and the early days of the church experienced. um, Many of us grew up in a time where uh, Christianity was uh, culturally dominant, so to speak. That, That most people, if they weren't Christians, they were at least friendly toward Christianity. And um, that we have seen that um, virtually disappear um, and decline for sure. Um, And when we start noticing it, even in uh, places like East Texas, which are, you know, full of of conservative Christian churches, you know, it's reached just about everywhere. Um, Today, the most vocal opposition that we hear is against Christian moral standards, right? Most of the push against Christianity in our culture is not about Jesus or about the gospel per se. People are still hesitant to say anything negative about Jesus, right? But, but they are not hesitant to say uh, that we ought to be ashamed of certain moral standards we believe we ought to hold people to. Right? Um, this was in the news recently with the vice president's wife, right? The, the shock and dismay that she would teach at a school that holds to traditional Christian moral standards, right? That, there, was, there was dismay, right, that, that anybody would hold to those views that we all hold to and all Christians have held to for 2,000 years. In Paul's day, in the first century, in the early days of the church, the major opposition uh, that we see them responding to in the New Testament is not to the moral standards of Christianity, though I'm sure there was some of that. The major opposition we see in the New Testament is to the message of the gospel itself. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, uh, Paul speaks of, uh, of the, the message that he preaches, the word of the cross. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. To people who don't believe it, to people who are lost, when they hear the gospel message, they think it's foolishness. It makes no sense to them whatsoever. And he goes on to say, uh, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews hear the message of the Messiah, who they've been waiting for, but they hear that who Paul is saying the Messiah is, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified on a cross. They say, whoa, wait a minute, that's not what I thought the Messiah was supposed to be like. And they stumble over that message. The Gentiles say, wait a minute, you're worshiping a guy who died 
the most shameful death anybody can experience? That's foolishness. Uh, There was opposition from both Jews and Gentiles to the gospel message. The idea of a Savior who died did not appeal to anyone, Jew or Gentile, except for those whom God had called and who believed. So in the first century and beyond and even today, though maybe less so in some cases for us than for Paul, it's still there. In the first century and beyond, and even today, identifying yourself as a Christian can bring you no end of trouble. Jesus knew that was going to happen. And he prepared his disciples for that, his followers for that in various ways. One of the ways was this. In Mark 8, 38, he said to them, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, he was warning them, preparing them. Some people are going to try to make you feel ashamed for believing in me, for following me. But the people who are trying to make you feel that way, they are themselves corrupt and twisted and sinful and rebellious. So if you are afraid to own in front of a sinful generation that you belong to me, then I will be ashamed to uh, own you as my own. Of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is calling us to be unashamed followers. To be unembarrassed by the fact that we call Lord a man who was God in the flesh who died on the cross in our place for our sin and who we believe rose from the dead and is seated right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Lots of people think that message is ridiculous. You be unafraid to own it anyway. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And that's what we see uh, Paul giving us an example of in his own life in Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's what we're going to, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, one, Romans 1, 16 and 17. These two verses have been called the thesis of the book of Romans. In other words, the summary statement of what Paul's whole argument, what his whole case is about in this book can be summed up in these two verses. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Here's what he says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul has just been saying, in the introduction to this letter, he's just been telling the church at Rome that he's eager to come to them and preach the gospel among them because he, as the apostle to the Gentiles, owes the gospel to everyone. He's willing to preach to Greeks who are cultured and barbarians who are not. He's willing to preach it to educated, wise people and uneducated Foolish people, as the world reckons them. He's willing to preach the gospel to everyone, right? The outcast as well as the in crowd. He is eager to preach the gospel at Rome, and someone might 
ask him the question, Paul, why would you be so eager to preach a message that is so unpopular, that is so out of sync with what people want to hear? Most people, when they stand up to say something in front of a crowd of people, they prefer to say something people want to hear. (laughs) They want to say something that will get them applause, that will win them followers and accolades. Paul, you're talking about preaching a message that most people don't like. Haven't you been run out of town for preaching that message before? Yeah, a handful of times at least. Haven't you been beat for preaching that message before? Yeah, yeah. Haven't you been thrown in jail for preaching? Yeah. You're still eager to preach it? Yeah. Why? Because I'm not ashamed of what I have to say. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm not embarrassed by what God has called me to preach. I am eager to make known this gospel of God, this good news that comes from God Himself. Paul knows what people think about it. He knows how most people are going to respond to it. But he does not care. Let others call it foolishness. He knows it's the wisdom of God. Let others mock a crucified Savior. Paul knows there's no other way to have life. Let others mock the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul didn't believe it at first either, but he does now. Because he has seen and heard the voice of the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul knows that the gospel is true and that the gospel is the only way for men to be made right with God and so he's not ashamed to preach it, to teach it, to proclaim it. And like Paul, we should be unembarrassed by the gospel. We should be unashamed to confess ourselves Christians. And all the shame and scorn in the world that the world would like to heap upon us ought not to silence us, ought not to make us afraid, ought not to make us embarrassed to wear the name Christian, little Christ, follower of Christ. But at the same time, I want to help you maybe offload some some misplaced guilt and shame. Because I think whenever we hear a passage like this and we hear uh, someone say we should be unashamed of the gospel, one of the ways this is rightly applied is in an encouragement to evangelize, right? Don't be ashamed to share the gospel with people. They're not all going to believe it. They're not all going to hear it. But don't don't be embarrassed by that. But some of us, are embarrassed to try to start conversations like that. Some of us are uh, very hesitant and reticent to try to start a conversation with a stranger about the gospel. Right? I think many of us. Not all of us, but I think many of us. And many of us, I think, believe or or feel at times that if we are... um, Afraid or nervous about or reluctant to start a conversation with a stranger about the gospel, it's because we're ashamed of the gospel. 
But I don't think that's necessarily true. And here's why. If that same stranger were to come up to you and somehow get the impression that you were a Christian and say, are you a Christian? Could you tell me about Jesus? Would you tell me about how somebody could be saved? And, and you would be glad to tell them. You would be unashamed to say, yeah, I am a Christian. I would, I'll be glad. Do you, uh, let me open the Bible. Let's, if you've got questions, I'd love to try to answer them as best as I can. If you would be unembarrassed to acknowledge that you're a Christian and to help explain the gospel to somebody as best as you could, but you would be very hesitant to start a conversation with an unbeliever and a stranger about the same gospel, I think your issue is not that you're ashamed of the gospel. Your issue is you're shy. And those are not the same thing. Right? Now, should you try to work through that shyness and fear of, of starting conversations with strangers so that you can be better at sharing the gospel? Yeah, sure. Yes. Yes. But do not connect that automatically with being ashamed of the gospel itself. Right? Shyness and ashamed of the gospel are not the same thing. Let me give you another, let me give you another example. I've had the privilege of talking to many of you in member meetings and saying, you know, tell me your story about how you became a Christian. Let's talk about the gospel. What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you become a Christian? And you weren't embarrassed to tell me about how you became a Christian. And you weren't hesitant to talk about how you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And that the, and you're a sinner. The only reason that you're saved is because of what Jesus has done for you. But what if right now I said, um, you, come up here and tell people your testimony and t- explain the gospel. How many of you right now, your heart's beating faster right now, right? Why is that? Is it because you're ashamed of the gospel? No, it's because you're afraid of public speaking, like everybody else, right? I want to help you distinguish between those two things, right? So that you don't carry around false guilt, right? If you are not willing to publicly say through baptism or to say personally in conversation, I'm a Christian, if somebody asks you, that's a problem. Right? That does have to do with, probably with being ashamed of the gospel, and, and that's a significant issue. But if you're willing to say, I'm a Christian, somebody asks you, yeah, I'm a Christian, then you're not ashamed of the gospel. You might be shy, you might be afraid of public speaking, you might have other things that, again, would be good to work through so that you can... Um, you know, tell more people about the Lord, but that's not the same thing as being ashamed of the gospel. So I just want to try to maybe help, help lighten your shoulders a little bit. Maybe take off some, some guilt that ought not to be there. That's not the same thing as being ashamed of the gospel. And you don't have to be Paul to be unashamed of the gospel. Right? You can be unashamed of the gospel in your own way. Right? You're not Paul. You're not, not all of us are going to go blaze a trail and march into cities and preach to big crowds. And all. That's not the only way to prove you're not ashamed of the gospel. Right? There are other ways to show, I'm not embarrassed to be a Christian. I am embarrassed to get up in front of a crowd of people, but I'm not embarrassed to acknowledge that I'm a Christian. 
Now, why is Paul so unashamed of this gospel? Why is he uh, eager to preach it? And why, though so many despise it, does he still want to tell people about it? Well, he explains it. This is one of the things that I love about Paul, is that he, uh, he tells us why he thinks what he thinks, why he does what he does, why he says what he says. One of the words that is very small, but that fills Paul's writings is that little word for. And when Paul uses that word almost every time, what he's doing is he's explaining something he said. He's giving a reason. I'm eager to preach the gospel. Why? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why aren't you ashamed of the gospel? For it is the power of God. This is why I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because the gospel is the power of God to save. Yes, I know that some people will mock it and despise it and laugh at it, but I know that this message is the only message that has the power to save people, to change their lives, to make them new. This is the only message that offers forgiveness from sin and reconciliation with God. This is the only message that can truly change people. Other people have things that they say that will help you, you know, turn over a new leaf, improve your life, improve your marriage, improve your finances or whatever. But only the gospel has the power to make you a new creature. A new creation to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. The gospel has the power to save. And it is the power of God for salvation, he says, to everyone who believes. Not just some people, but everyone who believes. The the necessary... uh, connection, right, the way you plug in, so to speak, into this power is through faith. Paul's not saying that this gospel um, automatically changes everybody who hears it. It doesn't. Sadly, most of us have witnessed people who have heard the gospel, maybe heard it dozens of times, and are unchanged by it. Is that because the gospel is not powerful? No. It's because they didn't believe. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 again, verse 18, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but he says to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, those who have responded in faith We have come to know by experience that this message is powerful. That it has the power of God to change us, to transform us, and to give us a new standing before God. So it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which means everybody. The Jews come first. Right, Paul, often when he uh, went to a new town to preach the gospel, the first place he went was the synagogue. And preach to the Jews and the Gentile God-fearers who were there. And then when they got tired of listening to him, then he'd move on to others. The Jews have a certain priority in God's plan, but they're not the only ones who get the message. 
The message is for everybody. The gospel is for all people. Paul is convinced not only from uh, what God has revealed to him in the scriptures, but also what he has seen by experience, that this message is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Many of us have gotten, had the privilege of seeing you know, maybe a handful of people who we knew before they were saved and who we've known after they were saved and we've seen God transform their lives. How many people do you think Paul saw go from paganism right, to trust in Christ? Go from having heard the Jewish scriptures all their life and not believing that Jesus was the Messiah to now realizing that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and trusting Him and, and their lives. How, how many people do you think Paul saw that happen to? Right, this is not just theology for Paul, though it is that. It's nothing less than that. It's also something he has seen in person, in real life. He's seen this message change people. And when you know something is true, and you've seen it work, you want to share it. You want other people to experience it. And that's what Paul is doing. So we, like Paul, should not be afraid to speak of this gospel, to tell people about this Savior, because this gospel has the power to save everyone who responds to it with faith. Now, how come it works that way? Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Or, maybe the question he's answering is, why is it for everyone? He could be answering either one of those questions, or maybe both, in verse 17. What is it about this gospel that is for all who believe, that is so powerful, or so universal, or both? Well, verse 17, he uses that little word, for, again, another explanation for us. For, in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's his answer. Now, what does that little phrase mean? In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This is one of those phrases that you cannot possibly grasp the significance of the first time you read it. This is a phrase that Paul is going to continue to unpack throughout the rest of the book of Romans. And the more familiar you become with Romans, the more significant you realize this little phrase is, the righteousness of God. Maybe you have um, watched a movie or read a book or heard a story where there was some kind of uh, surprising uh, twist at the end. And then you went back, either in your mind or you watched the movie again or whatever, and as you went back through the story knowing the ending, there were little phrases, little comments, little things that happened along the way that you realized, I had no idea what was going on at the time. Now, going back through it, knowing the end of the story, I see how significant that was. Just one example from the Bible. In the book of Ruth, right, if you've never read the book of Ruth before, <clears throat> then when you come to the phrase that says... Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. That seems rather insignificant. Okay, whatever. Why does Boaz matter? 
But if you know the whole story, if you know that Ruth came back from Moab with Naomi, they were both widows, they were essentially destitute, had almost nothing to their name, they were in desperate need, and this man Boaz happened to be a kinsman redeemer, somebody who could do something about it. And that at the end of the story, Ruth and Boaz get married, God provides a child for Ruth uh, and Boaz, which becomes Naomi's grandchild, and through that child and grandchild comes David the king, through whom will come the Messiah, then the second or twelfth or twentieth time you read the book of Ruth, when you read that little phrase that says, she happened to come to the field belonging to Boaz, you rub your hands together and you go, oh, this is when it starts to get good, right? She doesn't even know what God is up to right now, but I do, because I know the end of the story. So this little phrase in Romans, the righteousness of God is huge for Paul and huge for the rest of the book. I want to give you a sneak peek at a couple of things Paul has to say about this phrase that he means right here, but that we don't know until we study later parts of the book. Both of these are from chapter 3, and I'm just going to touch on them quickly. Romans 3, 21 and 22. Paul has just said that everybody is a sinner, everybody is under the weight of sin, everybody is going to be held accountable before God. In other words, we're all in really big trouble. But then he says, but now the righteousness of God, so there's our phrase, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Still not really sure what you mean, Paul. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So here's, here's what Paul is saying there. Um, when, when, when Luther was studying this book, he thought whenever he came across the phrase, the righteousness of God, that that was talking about God's righteousness against sin. God's righteous, we're sinners. So when I read the righteousness of God, I think God is angry. God is a judge. I have fallen short. I'm in trouble. But then he realized that Paul, when he's using this phrase here, he's talking about a righteousness of God for us. A righteousness that is not against us, but a righteousness that is for us. A righteousness God gives us. And guess what? It's been revealed or made known apart from the law. It's not a righteousness you get by obeying the law. It's a righteousness you get by grace. It's a righteousness that's a gift. It's a righteousness that God gives. You're unrighteous and God is righteous, which means you're in trouble. But God in His love and mercy wants to give you His righteousness which is good news. That's gospel. So, first thing he means by that phrase, the righteousness of God, uh, is that God God is willing to give us the gift of righteousness, give us a right standing with Him that we don't deserve. And then here's the second thing, in verse 25 and 26, he talks about Jesus' death uh, on the cross. He talks about Jesus, whom God put forward, he says, as a propitiation by His blood, that is a, a sacrifice that absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a complex couple of lines. Let me 
Let's try to get to the, the heart of it. God had passed over former sins. There were people in the Old Testament who sinned against God, who we knew were in relationship with God, but their sins had not been fully dealt with because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. So what did God do? God sent His Son, Jesus, not only to deal with the sins that people would commit in the future, like you and I have done, but also to deal with the sins that have been committed in the past, like the sins of David and Abraham and Moses and Noah. And He did that to demonstrate that He is righteous, that He will punish sin. Right? That he, when He forgives our sin, it's not because He's winking at it or overlooking it or deciding, well, your sin's not that bad. Your sin's really bad. I can't forgive that. Your sin's not that bad. We'll pretend like that didn't happen. He's not doing that. Every sin He forgives, He punishes. Just not by punishing the sinner, by punishing His Son in their place. That's what the cross is for. And Paul says He did this so that He might be just, He might be righteous, And the justifier, or the one who counts righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. So what Paul is saying is, in the gospel, God has made clear how he can be God, be righteous and holy and unswervingly opposed to sin, and yet be a God who forgives and shows mercy and makes new and declares ungodly people righteous in His sight because His Son has taken the just penalty for their sin while giving these sinners His deserved righteousness. That, Paul says, I'm not afraid to talk about. That message I'm not ashamed of, I'm not embarrassed of, because when people hear that and believe it, they get saved, they get changed, they get made new. When they realize that the righteous God can righteously count them righteous, they get free. They get forgiven. They get new life. And Paul says, this is not just something that I made up. Right? This is something that is borne witness to even in the Old Testament. This righteousness of God is from faith for faith, which... People have tried a dozen ways or more to try to explain that little compact phrase. I'm going to side with those who say it's really just a way of emphasizing that it's it's to those who believe. Don't try to parse it out too much. One one scholar even said it's about like saying to those who have faith alone. You just got to believe. That's all it is. From faith for faith... As it is written, he says, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this comes from the book of Habakkuk, and we could take a whole sermon and go through the book of Habakkuk and tell you what this verse means in Habakkuk and why Paul can use it here. But let me just cut to the chase. Right? He, what he seems to be saying, and I'm standing on the shoulders of scholar, you know, Greek and Hebrew scholars who have argued this stuff. What he seems to be saying is that Habakkuk is telling people, if you will trust God, like Abraham trusted God, then you will be righteous and have life with God. Remember that the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. You got the same same basic two words here. The righteous shall live by faith. Those who believe are the ones who are righteous and who will have life. In other words, Paul's saying this has always been the case. This is how God saved Abraham. This is the message God gave Habakkuk. This is the message I'm preaching now. God counts righteous 
God gives real life, eternal life, life with God in His presence, in fellowship with Him. He gives that to those who trust Him, who believe. And you don't have to be a Jew to believe. You can be a Gentile. You don't have to be a Greek. You can be a barbarian. You don't have to be wise. You can be foolish. It doesn't matter who you are. If you believe this message, God gives life. God gives righteousness. God gives salvation to all those who believe. It's a lot of truth packed into just a few short lines. And Paul's going to spend several chapters trying to help us understand it more fully. But we've got the point, don't we? And we don't want to be ashamed of such a message that has given us such hope and such joy in the Lord. So let's ask Him to give us boldness.